welcome. Uh, I'm a bit excited, looking forward to this conversation because uh, interest rates have been a big problem in my life. It's been a, <laughs> putting a damper on my summer, oh, yeah. thinking about uh, you know the fall launch schedule and, and where the market's headed. And glad we connected today so that uh, we can share with our listeners kind of your thoughts on on things, but um, maybe not your typical type of conversation about this because I like to ask really dumb questions uh, or not afraid to, I'd like to say. Um, but uh, so let's start at the beginning. And by that, I mean, um, help people understand why interest rates change and who changes them and how the big machine works. Because I think a lot of people don't really know. They hear things about the Bank of Canada overnight rate. They think that's it. It's not. Uh, they hear about bond rates. But if you could... Um, you know, dumb it down for me. I think most people will get it. Sure. Yeah. So you have variable rates and then you have fixed rates and they move independently uh, via different mechanisms. So the Bank of Canada sets something called the overnight lending rate, and that determines what the bank's prime rates will be. So the banks actually set prime rate based on that. Now, technically, the banks actually can set their prime rate um, and don't actually have to move completely in unison. We saw that actually when the, the uh, uh, subprime crisis hit years ago, back in 2008 and into 2009, they didn't follow and and come completely down in every single decrease. Yeah. So they don't have to. But in general, the easiest way to visualize this is that the Bank of Canada moves interest rates based off of macroeconomic factors. Yeah. So uh, they're looking at things like inflation, economic growth, imports and exports is a big one. Yeah. Actually, back in 2015, we, we dropped interest rates primarily because um, oil prices were decreasing. And one of the ways that, uh, that we can ensure that people are buying Canadian oils to decrease our interest rates, it decreases our dollar and then it puts our goods on sale. So yeah. little things like that. So, uh, macroeconomic factors are, are the big one for, uh, for the prime rate. So anybody in a very, the prime rate, rate is the rate at which the government will lend to the big banks. Is that right? Overnight lending rate is. Over, yeah. And yeah. then the banks set their prime rates on that. So oh, I see. Yeah. It, and without going too deep, the overnight lending rate, basically at the end of the day, banks are, are balancing their books. Um, and in order to do that, they have to borrow from each other overnight to be able to balance their books. So if you're TD and I'm RBC and I cashed a million of, or a billion of your checks, but you cashed 1.2 of mine, then we need to balance the books by 200, 200 million at the end of the day. Really? And yeah. So, um, so technically banks can borrow from each other, but to make it a more liquid market, the government actually steps in and they say, we're going to offer overnight borrowing rates. And so that's where the overnight lending rate came from. So they don't have to borrow from each other. They can all just borrow from government. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I did not. Yeah, know. That's why it's called the overnight lending rate. Yeah. You're borrowing overnight just to balance the books every day. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So banks are setting their prime rates. Anybody that's in a variable interest rate mortgage or a variable on a line of credit or some other facility, you're going to see that the, um, the interest rates are going to fluctuate. And so in general, the, the Bank of Canada meets every about six weeks and they decide to move the interest rate up or down or keep it the same. Normally, they move in quarter point increments, which has not been true for, for this year. Yeah. Um, when COVID hit, they moved three times um, downwards by half a point increments. Now, on the upswing this uh, this spring and summer, they've been moving up in you know one point or you know three quarter point increments is, is what we're seeing. So you know, they can move in, in uh, bigger, bigger swings, but in general, they usually don't like to, to swing things that much. And normally it's sort of only quarter penny increments. Yeah. Um, so that affects anybody that's in a variable rate mortgage. One thing to understand is that usually the banks, uh, Bank of Canada is usually working with um, not projected data, but data that's already occurred. And so they're usually a lagging effect and that can be good or bad. 
um, but they're usually um, not predicting markets. And that's important because the other side of the coin, which is fixed rate mortgages and how those are priced and determined are based on bond yields and bond markets are very predictive. And so one of the reasons that that bond yields has an impact on, on fixed rate pricing is because something called mortgage-backed securities. So it's actually what caused the U.S. subprime crisis to happen. And back in the early 80s, up until that date, banks really only lent out the money that they had. So um, they actually there was an issue that happened in the in the early 80s called the savings and loan crisis. And the reason for that is that banks were um, running into a situation where you can only lend out, you're only supposed to lend out the amount of money you have on, on deposits. But if you have a run on your deposits, then you also all of a sudden have a problem. So they come up with a new mechanism and they called the mortgage-backed securities. And basically, banks could lend out a bunch of money, bundle up the mortgages, and then sell them. And an international investor can choose to buy a bundle of mortgages or a bond or other financial instruments that are very similar to each other. And so the bond market has an impact on the mortgage-backed security market because if bond yields are rising, then in general, the mortgage bundles need to be comparatively priced to that. And the bond yield is the rate that the government is giving in order to attract money. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a government. Um, it can be a, a corporate entity, like different entities can can issue bonds. In general, they have to be large enough that it's secured you know, by something. That's the Yeah. Idea, right? It's actually trusted. You yeah. know, if Kyle Green's raising money by issuing a bond, well, you know, I'm just not as big of a player, you know? Yeah. So who's going to lend me money for five years or 10 years at 3%? Not a lot of people. Yeah. Right? Unfortunately, maybe my dad, <laughs> but he'd probably still want more than 3%. <laughs> yeah, so he knows yeah. you too well. Exactly. So a, a mortgage backed security is a big bundle of mortgages that yeah. are packaged up and sold. And, yeah. um, and so, uh, you'll see that bond markets, uh, react very quickly and they're very tied to a number of different factors. And in general, you'll see that the stock market has an impact on bonds. Uh, bonds are a safe place to park money. And so, if you have a lot of volatility, then a lot of money will start to flow into bonds. And if you have a lot of money flowing into bonds, then that's going to uh, push yields down. If you have money flowing out of bonds, then that pushes the yield up. So let's say that you're a company or a country raising money and you want to use bonds as your instrument to raise capital. If everybody is running away from the stock market and there's a line about the door for you, you don't have to pay 2% anymore to raise your money. You can say, oh, I'm going to drop the one and a half. And some people will leave your lineup, but you're still going to have enough people in line to raise the money you need. And so the the thing to look at here is that, that in general, based off of, um, of the bond market, if bad things are happening around the world, money flocks to safety, pushes yields down, generally mortgage rates go down in bad times. And the same for variable rates, except the variable rates usually take a little bit longer to take into it, into effect. Because um, all of a sudden the governments react to what's happening. So they react to, oh my gosh, uh, economic growth is dropping or, you know, we need to spur the economy. And one way to do that is drop interest rates. People borrow more money. Uh, companies in particular feel more comfortable borrowing money to grow or at least to feel comfortable that they can withstand a tough time. And um, and they'll continue to hire people or at least won't lay off people. Yeah. So, yeah, I get that. I see, I see the ebb and flow of variable and fixed rates based on those kind of normal things. What about inflation? How does that factor in? Yeah. So inflation is the exact opposite of what we were just talking about, like lowering interest rates to spur the economy. Inflation is the exact opposite. It's it's the, the economy is spurring too hard. Um, and so inflation is a big problem. It means that there are more buyers than sellers of products. 
And anytime you have more buyers than sellers, the price goes up. It's a basic supply and demand concept. And we see that in real estate, and but it really applies to any other product out yeah. there, right? So if you have too many buyers then and the prices are inflating at too fast of a rate, then the Bank of Canada is incentivized to actually increase interest rates to lower that. So one of the things they look at is uh, a target inflation. And typically, um, they look at a target inflation of about 2%. That's what they want the inflation to be at. Yeah. Right now, you see reports that it's running, running at 7.6, I think was the last last monthly update. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's up there. So that's why the interest rates are going up so aggressively. They are trying to curb people to, especially from borrowing money, uh, to continue to spur. And, and we see this with businesses and, and, and people in, in, uh, in general. People are starting to wonder, mm, maybe I shouldn't be borrowing so much money, or at least maybe I shouldn't be spending money today because my mortgage payments are going up. My, you know, all of my debt payments are going up. I should yeah. maybe be saving money. And in fact, increasing interest rates increases the savings rate too. So all of a sudden there's a higher incentive to save. Yeah. Right. Is that what, when we hear uh, the government talking about monetary policy, is that them watching the rate of inflation and other things and, and kind of dictating, you know, the prime lending rates and things like this to yeah. control it or affect it in some way? Totally. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the Bank of Canada, it's interesting because we, we talked about how the Bank of Canada affects the variable rates in the in the marketplace. But something that um, that North America learned a little bit from Japan is something called quantitative easing. And it's the act of getting money into the market in, in other ways. So instead of just using the interest rates as a mechanism, you can also change the money supply. And you hear about all oh, the printing presses and the money supply. What exactly is that? It's actually the government's buying real estate or not real estate, but but assets in the marketplace, which might be real estate backed. So yeah, um, one of the ways that they do this is they actually print a bunch of money and then use that to buy bonds. And so that's why all of a sudden you see bond yields go down because there's a as a big player in the lineup, the government. Right? Really? So they're buying tons of bonds and that pushes the yields down and it floods the market with with fresh cash. And that's what happened during COVID. What's what happened during the the subprime crisis was the first example that North America really used that, especially the U.S. Is that why inflation is so high now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone has a ton of extra cash. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that combined with, um, I don't say government handouts, but all, all of the support that government gave so many people during that time, people had some extra cash, right? Probably partly why our real estate market was so strong last year. Yeah, so I think what happened too is the government knows that when you print a lot of money, you're going to have some inflation that will happen later. So you're increasing demand of th for things by increasing the money supply. I think the other thing that was harder for them to wrap their head around, and they actually use some terminology on this, but they called the um, uh, the supply shortages. Um, what's the word they're using here? I think it's transient or something along those lines. But they basically said that the supply issues we're facing right now will pass, but they didn't pass. In fact, they got worse with the war in Ukraine, et cetera, right? So um, they print a lot of money. Okay, we we understand that's increasing demand today and it may cause inflation down the road, but we need demand today to make sure that people can afford their mortgages during COVID, et cetera. Um, so they made a short-term you know, boost and they knew that they're making a bit of a longer-term sacrifice because, they, because of the inflation issues. But I think that 
all of a sudden people have way more money to buy even fewer things than prior to COVID. So it like, it just skewed everything in the wrong direction, Mm -hmm. way more cash to buy fewer stuff or fewer things. And all of a sudden the prices just skyrocket in so many asset classes. Yeah. So, I mean, based on what you're seeing going on right now with Ukraine, inflation, interest rates, what, what's, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, it's harder for me to comment on the war, but I mean, the reality is, um, a lot of materials get more expensive. Um, I, I think I was hearing the other day that, um, for the first time in, in months since the war started, I think that Ukraine finally exported some grain to other countries in Europe. So that's a factor, right? I think they're one of the largest of grain exporters and there's a few other exports that they're the largest for. And we don't hear about these things or learn about these things until a war happens, right? Yeah. But, um, those are issues. Um, oil is used for military actions and also to create the things that are used in war. And so oil prices, that's one of the reasons that we saw oil prices go up so much. But we also have this issue too, where when COVID hit, nobody wanted to produce oil because nobody's using it. Nobody's flying, nobody's driving. I mean, do you remember how much of a ghost town it was for the first month or two of COVID? Yeah. You know, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was eerie. Um, but nobody's driving. Traffic was amazing for a little while. It was <laughs> One of the nice things about COVID. Yeah. Um, but then you have all these suppliers stop uh, extracting oil out of the ground. And then you have the supply and it actually caused oil prices to go negative for a while because nobody was buying oil, but then it still costs money to house the oil somewhere. So that was the weird flash crash for oil where we saw it actually go negative for a period of time or oil futures i guess went negative so you have weird things like this where all of a sudden okay let's not produce any oil for a while we've got enough or at least slow production you're not going to set up new wells but then all of a sudden when it spurs up and people are traveling again and driving again and then you have the war of your on ukraine all of a sudden everyone needs oil and you can't set up the um the extraction quick enough and then you see price go up so I do think it seems like it's stabilizing a little bit. I think that it just takes some time for that to adjust and and companies, if the oil prices go up, then you're more incentivized to extract more out of the earth, right? So I think that's adjusting, but I do think that from a interest rate perspective that we will see probably another three quarters of a point to maybe as high as 1% uh, in total increases with the Bank of Canada this year. Of course, it's possible to have more and I'm one of the people that definitely did not see this many increases coming if you asked me earlier in the, in the year. But uh, I, I mean, I get my information and data from people much smarter than I am. And a lot of people were wrong on this with regards to inflation. Um, so it's something that the, the central banks don't want to guarantee what they're going to do. They're trying to take it just one step at a time. But it seems like the next step is that the Bank of Canada will probably increase rates by three quarters of a percent in September. And then maybe another zero to a quarter point in October at that next meeting. That's the most likely outcome. And at least that's what people are basically betting on right now. Yeah. Some people believe you should never lock in rates because, you know, over the long run, variable rates are always lower. Um, you know, and I guess if you have the risk tolerance for it, that's, uh, probably true. And, um, and I do, but it's painful right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of those people that's riding at the variable. I, I mean, we recommended it to a lot of our clients and, um, and I, I'm taking my own advice to be clear. <laughs> I didn't yeah. lock in my own mortgage and then tell everyone to take variable. Um, I think it just, it rode up a lot faster than anybody expected. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we follow a lot of the major banks to issue what they're 
expectations are for interest rates on predictions and whatnot. And uh, if you look at it from February or March, nobody really expected this to happen. Yeah. And then bond yields just shot up in such large increments that you say, oh, that's that's a really high increase that's unlikely to sustain itself. And then more data would come out and the inflation just kept ratcheting up so aggressively. And then by the by the time that um, it, it was clear that of the interest rates are going up very aggressively. The bond market had already reacted so quickly to it that if you were to lock it in, you would be jumping up so much in the interest rate that you're still better off to just ride out the variable anyways. Because when you look at what the likely outcome is at the top end, you'd still be getting up to about the fixed rates. You know, there's a small moment in time where if you'd kind of known that interest rates are going to go up that quickly, you could have locked it in a little earlier. But the fact that the interest rates uh, increased so quickly just meant that it was difficult to quite understand what was happening and nobody really expected them to go up this much. Yeah. Is it weird to just be so incredibly wrong? I'm usually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's some people that, I mean, I, I'm I'm usually very good at predicting interest rates. I'm, I'm, that's something that I've generally been been pretty good at yeah. um but uh i don't know i'm a millennial i haven't gone through the 80s right i didn't own a home <laughs> and almost lose it because interest rates went up to the teens so maybe i'm biased right yeah. uh but when you look at the data and whatnot i mean it, it's I, I feel like overall um as economies seem to mature it seems like their growth rate starts to decrease and more and more people are leaving the workforce and and now sucking from the economy and um, it makes sense that interest rates in those types of economies would actually decrease. We saw it already happen to Japan. And I think that a lot of the first world countries are starting to move into that era where interest rates are likely to be lower on an ongoing basis for longer periods of time. Yeah. I, I believe that that's the overall trend, but yeah. we're still going to have these little jumps up and down and, yeah. and, and, you know, in the middle, right? Yeah. It's hard to predict the future. I'm asked also, you know, all the time and, and you know, your guesses sound educated and, uh, and they are, I'm sure, uh, the trouble I have with the, you know, the pre-sale part of the industry that, that we're specialized in, it's, um, it's not really based on fundamentals, you know, it's really sentiment driven. So it's not about, you know, what, what the situation or what the market is, it's what people believe it is. Cause it's all about the future, you know, often four or five years into the future, that people are trying to anticipate whether this is a good investment, whether it's a good time to buy. It's not even about right now. It's about will it be at that time. Anyway, so how's um, how's business? You're busy. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. I mean, I've so back in pre-COVID times, um, COVID times. I'm talking like it was such a different world back then. Yeah, like two years ago. Um, I had seven employees and now I have 18 employees. So the world has changed, hired a lot of people. And it's interesting, a lot of my newer employees that haven't been around for that long are really freaked out about the market. And there's no matter how many times you can say and tell them, guys, it's going to be okay. We're well positioned to handle this type of market and this type of climate. Um, they still worry and panic a little bit. But as a, so first of all, with my specific niche, so green mortgage, um, we specialize in working with real estate investors. That's 80% of our client base. We were the number 14 broker in Canada last year. We funded uh, 250 million in mortgages. So we do a lot of business. Is that within Dominion or overall? Uh, that's that's my own personal originations. Um, and I'll get wow. to it in a little bit, but I also own a brokerage as well, where I help brokers build their businesses too. 
but um, by my own personal originations, which I've been doing for 15 years now. And I got settled up with a guy named uh, Ozzy Jurok, who I know that both of us are speaking at a, uh, his conference in uh, just a little, little over a week. Um, I became his mortgage guy back in 2008. So that's how I became, you know, create this niche of working with investors. Yeah. Um, actually gave a really good reason for people to use this 22 year old mortgage broker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you have a niche. Awesome. Right. So anybody that's listening to this and you have a business, create a niche. It really is effective. Um, but one of the things I found is that, um, because we've become known as the people that get the tough deals done, the complicated deals done, um, when the market turns and becomes harder, guess who's getting those calls, right? Yeah. It's not those newer brokers that joined the industry a year or two ago that had deals kind of plopping on their lap just because they happened to call a realtor and they said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give you the next deal that comes along my, my way. The um, the realtors I do work with are calling my cell phone a lot more um, because they're saying, Kyle, how do I get this deal structured? How do Please I do this? help? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm working on a deal right now where my buyer's financing and, and deal's about to fall apart because the buyer of his property is about to not complete because the buyer of her property didn't complete, right? So there's a chain of three properties behind. And we came up with a solution that my buyer is getting a line of credit on his purchase that he doesn't require. He's going to carry some financing back for the buyer of his property so that she can close on, on her wow. purchase. And in order for that to all get structured, I had to call the other mortgage broker working with his buyer to make sure that those loans are structured in a way where once she sells the property that didn't sell, my client carrying back the mortgage will fully be repaid or at least mostly repaid and make sure the structure is all going to work so that I can represent my client on that, you know, but wow, you know, it's, that sounds so hard. <laughs> yeah. And guess who out of the 18 people in the, in the team, guess who's the one person that can really deal with that. So yeah. it becomes a tough yeah, issue one. for scalability. Right. So I personally am very busy. Um, you know, I'm, I haven't really slowed down as far as like how much time I'm spending in my business. My team probably aren't at quite as busy, but we also have a big team and we just reallocate resources, right? If you're not busy dealing with live deals that are sitting in your pipeline, then you create new ones. So we come up with marketing strategies and plans and honestly, just as simple as reaching out to our customers. Do you need anything? Can we help you with anything? And, and becoming more present and maybe you don't close as much business, but you definitely create uh, increased market share and you prepare yourself for the next big boom, you know? Yeah, I imagine, uh, you know, that deal that you saved and the people involved that care about it most are clients for life, right? 100%. Oh, yeah. They're very, there's a lot of gratitude that comes from something like that. So, so again, for people that, that aren't, you know, experts on in the mortgage brokerage industry, um, you are the type that uh, can uh, talk to all mortgage lenders as opposed to uh, other types that work for one particular bank. Yeah. So, there's the first like level one of this conversation is a mortgage broker deals with about 40 different lenders and as opposed to like a mobile specialist that just has their own one bank that they, they represent. And the ability to shop a number of different lenders helps a lot um, to compete on rate, but also on product too, because every bank has their own little box. And I actually found that the business changed a few years ago where um, sometimes the same bank in our channel would say, okay, here's what we do for brokers. But then our mobile specialists, we don't want them leaving a mobile specialist role to become a mortgage broker and then still have access to the same products and everything. And so they would create a bit of a gate where they say, okay, these things are only available for our mobile specialists, but brokers 
um, cannot access it just to create something. So some reason to, for the mobile specialist to stay. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm laying all my cards on the table, by the way, yeah, you know, like as, a, as a broker, but yeah. um, in fact, so what we would do in my part of my business model from an, from a, even years ago was having relationships with these mobile specialists to make sure that any deal can get done. You learn all the little nuances. Sometimes it's just one little nuance or two little nuances that they do a little bit differently. And sometimes they're surprised that we can do something different too, because sometimes they say, oh man, brokers can get so much stuff done that we can't. Yeah. And brokers sit here and complain, oh man, those mobile specialists get so much that we can't get done. But the reality is you just have to learn the game and play it, right? And we've learned that game. We know what everyone does. And so most mortgage brokers work within the broker channel. What makes us unique and different is we have contacts at every major bank. In fact, we have usually two or three because sometimes people go on vacation and that way we can get a deal done with any lender. And that's what makes us a bit unique because most mortgage brokers don't want to have all these relationships with all these lenders and, and, um, and maintaining those relationships takes a lot of time and you don't want to be, you know, turning away business and saying, okay, client, you're going to have to go over here to a lender that doesn't pay us. Cause then that's a new conversation do we get compensated for that work or not? Right. And because most of our clients are real estate investors that have eight or nine rental properties. Well, usually if we can be the one person that can get everything done, then they're happy to pay us a fee for our services if it gets done. And so uh, when things get tougher, we can get those deals done. And that's really become our, our thing yeah. is no matter what, if it's doable, we can get it done. And most mortgage brokers would tell the client, I'm sorry, but it has, this has to go to a B lender. And then you pay the B lender a fee anyways. And then you're also paying the B lender a higher rate. But with us, we can get a lot of those deals that would otherwise get done with a B lender. We'll, we'll get them done with a major bank. Um, you're just going to pay me the fee instead of pay the lender the fee. But then you're going to get the best rate in the marketplace or the best available rate to you in the marketplace. Yeah. And so that's really been our thing, especially with real estate investors. It's just way more moving parts, more, more complicated. A lot of them are self-employed and you need to use some of the corporate income to make the deal work. And a lot of the retail lenders don't like to do that, but some of them do. And some of them have programs for that. And and every lender, especially with how much rental income they use to qualify somebody, that's that varies drastically depending on the lenders. So what really happened a number of years ago, um, like five years ago, is the government started to audit the banks after 2016. And the audits really came into force in 2017 and 2018 to make sure that banks are lending according to their box. And what ended up happening is usually, you, you know, people would have a relationship with their bank and the bank would say, well, this isn't quite our lending policy, but because we know you and we know you're good for it, we're just going to, we're going to bend the rules a little bit and we're going to make an exception for you. Is that the box, the rules? The box. Yeah. And they would make what's called a debt servicing exception. So yeah, you don't quite have enough income, but we can make an exception for you because of this or that. Now, what ended up happening is the government said, you need to stop lending outside of your guidelines. And it became boxier and more rigid. And so now the, the, it's actually improved working with a broker from that perspective, because if you go to your bank, you got to work with the same box that we do because the government's getting is auditing those banks to make sure they're lending inside of their guidelines. Well, every bank has different sets of guidelines. And so you might be stuck having to go to a different lender than you used to. And back in the, you know, back in the day, it used to be relationship banking, you know, it used to be based off of your relationship. And nowadays it's very transactional in nature. The underwriting is a head office in Toronto or Vancouver. Nobody really, the person approving your loan does not know you, you know, um, back in the day, it used to be a branch manager that knows you that would be approving that loan. And they would have 
signing authority and authority at that branch. And nowadays the branch managers have almost no authority themselves. Credit committee back East. Yeah. 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 I get it. That was my experience too. I, one of my favorite people in the world is a mortgage specialist with a bank and, and it felt safe to share all my financials with such a close friend. Um, but then when I mortgaged, I guess, uh, my third property, um, he's kind of like, we're done sort of, you know, there's a, there's a limit that you can do with one bank. And then you're kind of, uh, if you're a real estate investor, you have to work with somebody like you to cast the net wider, to work with different people. Um, because that, that box you talk about is, is pretty firm in my experience. There's a certain point where they just won't, they just won't keep lending. It's just, they're only comfortable yeah. with a certain amount or only allowed a certain amount. And there used to be a lot more exceptions to that. And now there, there aren't. Yeah. And so it's made my job a bit easier, you know, yeah. especially if we're going to say, Hey client, we can't get this done with one of the 40 lenders inside the broker channel. I have a lender that it might work with, but you'd have to pay me my fee directly. If the client's been declined already, that conversation's a little bit different than somebody who thinks that they can walk into the bank and get approved. Right. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's changed the, it's changed our business a little bit, but that's the reason that we're still quite busy, you know, up till the end of June, we were still outpacing last year. Um, our July was okay. August is pretty good. Um, and then September looks like that's going to be our, our low month out of the year, but we're already seeing October start to have quite a few deals pile up in it. And this is very like ground level. Um, but I'm really feeling that the last three weeks has been a quite a pickup in the new leads. A lot more offers are being written and accepted, which if you look back at it, you, you're gonna have, you have basically opposite year. You have a, a year where January and February were your two hottest months of the year, which are usually the quietest months of the year. And then uh, leads started to decrease in March. Usually leads start increasing in March. And then usually the second half of August is the one of the slowest periods of the entire year because people are on vacation. Other than the Christmas break, I'd say that that's the slowest time of the year for new leads. And this is the and it seems like this might be the turnaround point for leads increasing again. Wow. So it's just a really weird year. And COVID has honestly just taken the norms, the psych, the normal real estate cycle, and has thrown it completely upside down. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. It's good to hear. Mm -hmm. um, I also feel good about the fall, about the market. We're launching two new projects and, and I'm very bullish on both of them and yeah, happy, uh, looking forward to it. How's, uh, have you grown so much? I mean, growing from seven to 18 in a couple of years, I think you had a, you acquired a company or merged. Is that part of it? Yeah. So that's, that's not part of it. Um, so the, I, I have green mortgage as my personal originations basically means that I'm sourcing the business and I have a team that produce in the back end. So I think um, one of the ways that Green Mortgage has been able to grow so quickly was, um, frankly, was systems. And I think that the the idea of trying to stop operating the business like a small business and operate more like a, I'd love to see a large business, but the reality is more like a medium-sized business. And a medium-sized business has uh, a, a organization that is not so flat. You don't have everybody reporting to the one owner. You eventually start to have groups or pods and, and management that are kind of separating uh, the owner and and uh, the people that are doing the work. And so hiring the right people and putting them in place is a big key. And I found too that setting up and creating a system that does not have me as a key component or cog of the mortgage transaction itself. So Kyle Green will still jump in and, and help to do deals, but he's not the 
key people on on the deal or the transaction. So we we created and I've test run it this all all directions. We've really tried to fine tune what's the right number of people and personalities to have working on one single client file. And I've tried it where we have one person take that client's file front to back. I've had it where we have up to four people take it front to back. And that's not, neither of those are the right numbers. The right number that I found is three and you have two people that work directly with the client and one person that works directly with the lender. And then you create a system where the communication, because the more of cooks in the kitchen, the more important communication is then you have note templates for each person who's communicating when they hand off the deal to the next person. Now it's their responsibilities in their pipeline. They take it, move it up, and then they put up some notes and then hand it to the next person to take it on. And so uh, those three people that are involved in the transaction are document manager who deals the, with the client just for the documents, an account manager who deals with the client for all of the high-level discussions, rate, term, product, and you know what, how, what our strategy is on that mortgage. And we have our underwriter who deals with um, preparing the file, figuring out which lenders that deal can go to, and then sending it to the lender, getting the approval and getting all the documents wrapped up. And that was the system that we developed. And and what ends up happening, I find, is that when you have a way of doing things, your customers will just adapt to it. And if all of your marketing and the documents that you put out there, and it clearly lays out, this is how this process is going to go with us. Because almost every customer that calls the office, guess who they ask for? Yeah. I can hear my team all the time, you know, oh, you know, Kyle, he actually manages the team and he, and he doesn't actually, you know, work any with any specific clients. But what happens then is because Kyle's not stuck on the phone on phone calls, he doesn't need to be on. He is free and available to jump in to save a situation when a problem comes up because you want Kyle to be able to call the lender and flex on a Friday afternoon, if your deal is about to fall apart, you don't want Kyle to be on a phone phone call with a first time home buyer, um, collecting some random documents and information. Right? Say all that. Yeah, that's what our yeah. team. You know, our team is. We have script and yeah. scripts, and we've trained the team, and we have a new person that just started, and she's actually been doing role playing with our account managers and making sure that she's got it. And they're they're trying to be really picky clients, trying to get access to me. So she's learning how to gatekeep, right? That's true. So yeah, that's that's important. So having a system and then having, um, just telling people that this is the way we do things and customers say, oh, okay, well, that makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does make sense. I bet people uh, get that. Yeah. Um, but I know we're working on a few deals. And I still want to talk to you. So that, yeah, that's no. great for everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they're complicated, of yeah. course. <laughs> yeah. And I, it's good for you for specializing in the, the tough ones or the challenging or the, the, the ones where creativity is needed. It makes us very resilient. Um, and this is to look at this from a really high level. And I'm projecting five, 10 years, maybe even more into the future. But what happens when AI can do a mortgage from front to back. I'm fairly well insulated from that because these deals are so complex that it'd be very difficult for a computer to replace what, what green mortgage does. It'll be a lot easier, however, for a computer to do a mortgage for a first-time home buyer who's a salaried employee. It'll have the technology to just scan the documents, um, scan the pay stubs, the letter of employment, scan the... Um, upload the bank statements, verify that the bank statement deposits match up with the letter of employment and pay stubs provided, and then grab it and just literally auto-approve the client. That's um, happening now. It's still a ways away. And you hear about Rocket Mortgage down south, but really I think 80 or 90% of all clients using Rocket Mortgage down in the US are still having a person do the deal. 
Um, and so the marketing of Rocket Mortgage is do your mortgage online. I don't know about that. Tell me about it. Yeah, Rocket Mortgage, their their whole shtick is, hey, apply online and just type everything into a, a computer and it's all it's going to totally do it for you. And you don't have to talk to a person. The funny thing, though, is that right now people aren't ready for this. They're not ready to not have a human dealing deal with the most important financial decision of their life to this date, right? Um, but people will be becoming more and more comfortable and more, more and more people like to do their own research and they don't want to pay for somebody to be the middleman. And so we're, we're going to find that more and more um, AI will be replacing mortgage brokers that do the easy deals. There are mortgage brokers out there that right off the bat, if you do a, you know, look at the rate comparison websites, they offer a lower interest rate. They, they throw some of their commission back at the deal to make less money in a mortgage and offer a lower interest rate, but only if the deal is super simple and super clean. So it has to be an insured mortgage. So you're putting less than 20% down, a salaried employee. It has to fit within a very small box. Frankly, not a lot of our boxes, our deals fit that box. Um, but uh, but that is the, the world where it'll be a lot harder to replace what green mortgage does in the future. And so we're well insulated because no matter what happens, people always need the advice that we provide to our clients. And, um, and I don't really see that changing. Yeah, I don't either. In the pre-sale industry, you know, the, the mortgage rates are held for the pre-sale buyers for the term of construction. Um, obviously, that's not your game. That's kind of the big, big four banks. But in markets like this, where rates are, are relatively high, uh, at completion in four or five years, they're probably going to be lower. And that's when you can do a lot of business in presale, right? Because those buyers are not obligated uh, to go through with those those held mortgage rates. They could come and talk to you. Yep, 100%. Yeah. That's good news for the future. Oh, yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, opportunity to come down in a market like this, for sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's that's definitely one of them. You know, we don't I know that uh, in general, there, we have a few options inside of the broker channel for longer term rate holds, but uh, a condo towers in particular, the longer term rate holds are tougher. We have up to 18 months inside the broker channel, but yeah. if it goes beyond that, then there's less options. It's usually directly the bank. And frankly, normally the bank providing the financing to the developer is usually the one that wants to offer those, those long term rate holds too. They know the project, they know everything, they feel comfortable with the risk they're taking on it, right? Mm -hmm. So it usually makes sense that the same bank providing the developers financing is going to also offer the buyers. Yeah. Have you looked at the pre-sale industry? Do you have any sort of thoughts on, uh, you know, solutions or things that it could do differently or better? Do you have any opinions on it? Uh, I know what the government could do better. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Uh, I mean, we have a supply problem and it's yeah. not getting better and COVID um, made that worse. And I actually think it's going to continue to be a problem and those that are thinking that the real estate market is going to fall from underneath it, uh, I think, are not considering the fact that conversations that I'm having right now with developers, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you have two projects that are coming online soon, because a lot of conversations I'm having with developers are, we're pausing. Our costs have increased. The demand for our product has decreased. We don't want to sell it and be in single-digit margins. That's not It's not worth it for us to take that risk. We own the land outright. We're just going to sit on it and we're going to wait until the timing is right. Well, here's the problem. We already have a supply problem. The reason that prices aren't falling as quickly as they have in other markets is, yes, the demand has fallen, but the supply is still very low. And um, and eventually the demand, once, it once people see, okay, I know where rates are now. They've flattened out. I know what to expect. People are going to start coming back to the market and already starting to see that. People have a better understanding of what has happened. 
They know what they can qualify for and what they can afford. Um, and the demand will start to increase. But the problem is the supply is very inelastic and is very hard to change. And so if developers are pausing projects, you know, we're not going to see a huge short-term impact to that. But if you buy a pre-sale, like for, I, I'm typically, I'm going to tell you this face-to-face, -face, I'm not usually pro pre-sale. Um, in certain times I, I will be, but typically it's not like primary investment choice. And I know some people where it is. However, I actually now more than ever, I'm very interested in pre-sales because I think a lot of developers will not be starting projects right now. If I buy in a project where a the, the developers trying to sell them right now is like, I just need to get sales. I need to get this thing moving. Maybe I can get a better price. Number two, I think that by the time that this completes, there'll be less product hitting the market when mine completes than normal because other developers are choosing not to start their projects today. And so I think that that will have uh, further down supply chain problems, not to mention in greater Vancouver, um, uh, we're going to see a lot of migration coming in and, and usually they come into major urban centers. Like I think downtown Vancouver is one of the best spots to be buying right now. It hasn't increased for three or four years now. And if you're buying a pre-sale, I think that uh, there won't be enough supply to meet the demand in a couple of years. Yeah, there's a huge wave of immigration coming. Yep. I mean, during COVID, all of the administration around the approvals and all that kind of stuff continued, and and uh, but nobody really came. And um, it's starting now, and they want to buy homes. And it's just, it, um, yeah, I'm very bullish. I'm very much looking forward to uh, this fall and to the next year. You know, we've had significant but short downturns in our market. We're so lucky. I'm so lucky. Uh, our team is so lucky to be doing what we do in this city or this metropolitan area, because in 2008, you know, the sky fell with the global financial crisis. And in May, um, 2008, the Lehman brothers collapsed and that was kind of the official start, I guess. But in January of 2009, we sold hundreds of condos. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in 2018, you know, the government meddled, um, controlled, demand, you know, they, they, well, they, they imposed, uh, you know, foreign buyers tax and empty homes, vacancy taxes, things like this. And, uh, some implementation, some conversations, but it was enough to put a lot of fear into the market. Um, but six months later, the market was back until March, 2020, of course, that was COVID, um, March around 15th, I think it hit full on. And, and in September, uh, six months later, um, we sold out two projects, one on Camby Street, Concrete, and uh, one tower in Coquitlam. And here we are. Our experience in this recent market has been, um, you know, Mar the first quarter was amazing. We sold out our last project in, in March in a couple of days. And, uh, and I think in October when we launch the next two, um, you know, the market's going to be back. So we're, I guess just very lucky that we don't take uh, this market doesn't suffer the huge swings, the downturns like uh, are suffered in Alberta mm. or America. I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Helps me sleep at night. <laughs> and if you look at this, the cycle, the downward cycle length of time, um, it's usually not very long. Like it, it's it, it. Of course, this market is not immune to to downward trends, but if you look at how long we are in those downward trends for, it's not that long, you know, I mean, I was, I was a 20 year old broker going through the subprime crisis. So I might have my dates and whatnot a little bit off here, but I believe that it, the, it, it started in May of 2000, 
uh, and eight when things started to go crazy. Um, I think it may have been Bear Stearns in May and then Lehman Brothers maybe in September. Mm -hmm. I think that may have been it. But uh, regardless, I think it started to get pretty heavy by September and October. That's when the market really started to close up. But I feel like by May of 2009, I remember that my business in particular shot off and I felt like that was when everyone started to buy again. So even in the subprime crisis, it was like a eight months, nine month yeah. period of, of not, you know, not a great time. And that was a real scary time, you know, yeah, um, be scary. you know, it, it, this is not comparing in most ways to that. Yeah. And so, um, what I'm hearing is major banks are thinking, yeah, you know what, it might still be slow, but by next spring, um, that seems to be the not worst case scenario, but the longest expected timeline that it'll be soft. And a lot of people that I talked to expect it to be even shorter than that, that, you know, it could even be rebounding already. Um, it could be rebounding in a couple of months by September, October, once all the rate increases have kind of filtered their way through the system. But uh, I think it'll be sooner rather than later. And all those people that are sitting on the fence, wondering and waiting and hoping for the bubble to burst, I think they'll be I think they'll be uh, disappointed once again that it won't <laughs> totally. be happening, you know? Yeah. October. Can't wait. Mm -hmm. So you wrote a book. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, you looked, okay. You did your research. I Googled you. <laughs> I Googled you. And uh, yeah, I watched a video of your uh, kind of your uh, launch party of your book. Mm -hmm. uh, the party looked good. Yeah. And the book looks like he partnered with uh, a client or an investor. He said he bought a, uh, he bought a condo in Abbotsford. You helped him refinance. He ended up by effectively buying this thing for a dollar and started talking with you over a couple of cocktails and it led to a book. <laughs> so yeah, not, a, not a client actually. He was another, um, uh, mortgage broker and realtor. He's kind of moved more into the real estate side of things now. Um, but he was a good friend of mine and, um, and we just knew each other from the industry. What's the name of it? Uh, his name is Jesse Johnson and our book is called Rockstar Real Estate Investing. Rockstar. Yeah. So, um, Amazon.com. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Amazon bestseller. <laughs> is um, it really? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> what, what best of what? Like, how does that work? Okay. Do you want to, you want to hear the secret? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just pay them. Okay. Say yeah. that. <laughs> so to become an Amazon bestseller, you have to sell a certain amount of books in one day. So what you do is you have a wicked launch party. And so we had, I think it was 200 people at our launch party. We put the book down to, I think, a, a dollar or something like that on um, on uh, on Amazon to buy the uh, the e-version of the book. Yeah. And then everyone that comes out to the event, you uh, ask them and incentivize them to buy a copy of your book. And At get, the party. Yeah, exactly. As, as many copies as, or as many people as possible. <laughs> Actually, we give them free um, hard copies of the book, but then ask them, please spend an extra dollar and get the, you know, the e-version too. Yeah. Um, and then we found out at night while we we're still at our event, actually, we got an email that came in and Amazon said, yeah, you've become a bestseller. So that's actually how you do it. You uh, didn't know that before? Uh, no, we knew it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it worked. That's what you found out. It worked. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So oh, we, we had planned it all and we kind of figured out, again, we talked about what, you know, learn the game and play it. Right. So we figured, yeah. okay, well, this is how you become an Amazon bestseller. Yeah. So. Um, you know, we hadn't sold a ton of copies and frankly, the effectiveness and what it, what it is today is an expensive business card, but it's, it's really a book that was written, um, to teach people the fundamentals of how to invest in real estate. We're basically from zero or close to zero to becoming, okay, I understand why I should invest in real estate and how the basics work, you know? Um, so that's uh, who it's really for someone that wants to maybe a millennial or, or somebody 
that's just getting into the business or getting into the idea of buying that that's a good starting place. Yep. Yeah. And of course, I mean, I find um, no matter what, you're going to pick out something, even if you're a seasoned investor, there's probably one or two little things or tricks or a different way of me explaining something or, or writing it out that, that will resonate and they'll learn something. But um, the book definitely is designed more for those people that take them from not really knowing anything to, to higher level. And, and that means that we've, you know, we give it to realtors to give to their clients and other people to say, Hey, look, if you ever want to uh, learn more about investing in real estate, here's a book. And it's mutually beneficial because now the realtor is delivering an item of value to their client. And now the client's likely to want to call us if they need a mortgage, especially if it's an investment property, right? Yeah. So everyone wins. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Plus it gives a lot of credibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just looks cool. It's it does. a good looking book and it and it's part of your uh, your prolific speaker at kind of real estate conferences and whatnot. And and I think that that book probably contributes to that, right? It does, yeah. And and it's all about building, especially a mortgage. It's it's a very important process, um, and it's all about building trust, right? Yeah. Writing a book builds trust. Yeah. Getting up on stage builds trust with people, right? So, how do you enjoy writing it? So we used a company called. They changed their name now. Um, it used to be called Book in a Box, and now I think it's called Lions Something. I couldn't even tell you buy my book and it's inside one of the covers. <laughs> yeah. But, um, they called it book in a box because they actually tried to make it easier. So especially with two authors, we have a different writing style. Right. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that they did was they would ask us, you know, high level, what do you want to talk about? And then they would just ask us um, the questions and they effectively wrote it for us. And then we would get to add revisions and change it. Yeah. But the idea was um, that, a, it would be one fluid writing style throughout the book now, instead of having two different authors writing in different styles, um, which would be clashing for sure. Um, but also to make sure that I get myself out of my, you know, my natural tendency to explain things um, the way that I see it and I view it. Instead, somebody else is asking me the questions that's not a real estate investor and then gets to write it in a way that a non-real estate investor would understand. That yeah, makes sense. Right? So. I'm not allowed to use the super technical terms, <laughs> you know, yeah. we didn't get too technical in the book because the intention was not to have it too technical. It was written by somebody that's not a real estate investor where yeah. we just would talk about it. They would write it up and then we'd review it and say, well, that's not quite accurate or let's tweak this. Or I really think that this should be in the book. And they say, okay, great. I'm just going to change these two words and, and get it done. But um, it was a, it was a good experience. And then they also just helped with the marketing and publishing and all that stuff. So yeah. I think it cost us about, 25 grand. And the reason that Jesse and I decided to do it together was the fact that it's co-authored doesn't really take away from the fact that I've written an Amazon best-selling book. No. It's, it doesn't matter, but we got Not to split the marketing cost down the middle. Yeah. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I met a guy who uh, got in the business of helping people write books because he'd written uh, a best-selling book about how to pick up girls in a bar. <laughs> and he sold uh, okay. at, at best selling. I think I probably asked him the same question what that meant, but I think he sold a million copies or something. And, and he's somebody famous. I can't remember his name anymore. I met him at uh, the Silicon Valley thing. And he told me his process and, and this is what he was doing for other people. And he was trying to talk me into it. And it, that book in a box sounds like a professional way of like having help. Mm-hmm. Um, but the do it yourself for kind of way that he did it. He said he just talked into his phone, uh, just the whole book, just talked about uh, everything he wanted to say in the book Mm -hmm. and then had it uh, automatically transcribed um, and then read it. And he said, it's shocking when you read um, the way you speak, it almost makes no sense. Like 
when you read something that's written, it's organized in a certain way and it's very coherent. But when you read what you've actually said, he says, shocking how uh, the way you talk, it just mm-hmm. uh, you repeat, you repeat yourself like I just did. It doesn't make any sense and it's all going to be edited. So you sort of plow your way through that as best you can. Then you can hire a professional editor for relatively cheap who just, you know, takes a sort of chopped up thing and reorganizes it, makes it sound good. And then the process sounds similar to yours that you just, you know, add a couple of things, edit a few things, send it back for the finishing touches. And, and there it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it would make sense for a lot of people who, you know, wanted to do some public speaking or increase their profile or like you said, an expensive business card. Um, or if you just have some knowledge, I think you want to share, but those are a couple of good ways to get it done. So tell me about your people strategy, because your core business has grown 50% a year for the last two years in a row. And that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Plus your difficult times and you're working in an industry where you know, everybody hears about realtors that make so much money so easily. And, and that sort of um, skews people's perspective on things. It's so easy. Yeah. <laughs> and there's probably some commissions involved. So you're in some high risk, high reward type compensation structures. Do you have any thoughts you want to share with people that are building teams about how you've done it so well? Um, yeah, I guess a couple of comments on that would be, it helped to have, we talked a little bit about really about having a system and having an, an idea of, of who does what, but then it makes it easier whenever you're hiring people because the job description of exactly what this person's going to do is very clear. And then it also makes it easier to hire people because there's the DISC personality profile test. There's the Myers-Briggs personality profile test. The reason that I split this, these, or one of the reasons I split it up into th- uh, those three people is a account manager is basically an inside salesperson. And they're usually not detail people, but they're really good on the phone and uh, and they're better at sales in general, right? They're more likely to, you know, oh, a lead came in. I'm going to call that lead. I'm going to work it, you know? Yeah. So they're more motivated that perspective. Um, whereas a document manager, they see value in doing the same thing over and over again. An account manager sees value in doing new things and learning new things all the time. So you just have different people that want different things. Do you use DISC or Myers-Briggs or one of those? We do. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I've started, I've been using DISC um, for quite a few years and now we're also adding the Myers-Briggs because it just adds another layer to that. Um, When I'm hiring, um, when I'm hiring a, a document manager, I'm looking for somebody that's steady you know, compliance oriented, right? Yeah. Um, when I'm hiring somebody that's in sales, I want somebody that's you know, social, you know, a high D might be another potential value in that side of things. But like, it's, it's very important that they align with the, uh, the role that you're trying to put them into. Right. And so everyone has a different personality. So that was one thing that I found helped another exercise. And I don't remember if I learned this from, I think it was either e-myth or traction, I think. And I might be wrong on that, but one of those two books, I started doing this thing where I create my future org chart. So I'd look at, okay, where do I want to be in five years from now? I'd write out the goals. I want to fund this much in mortgages. Um, I want to have this much in net profit. And then I start to map out how would that happen? How would I achieve that? What would the future org chart look like to be able to, to be able to do that? And then I'd be able to map out, okay, with that org chart, what would the expected salaries and therefore costs be for each of these people? And then map it out. And then usually my net income number is always way lower than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Doesn't, you know, to, to do all that, you're like, ah, oh, crap, it's, the costs are always higher than I think. Right. But that's okay. Um, because then you go through the exercise and realize if your business model actually is going to work or not. Um, so you've create that future org chart. And then the really important experience with that 
is then to take that org chart and then I like to color code it with who currently fills those future org chart seats. And in general, the owner of the company almost always fills a few seats, right? Um, so I look at this company, right, my company right now, and there's the visionary seat that kind of sits at the top. And usually the owner of the company fills that, that role normally. Um, I have an underwriting manager. I just have a general manager that starts in about a, about a week from now. Um, and he's going to fill some of this future sales manager role that I was originally seeking for. In fact, I was trying to hire a sales manager role and I decided that this person is a really good fit for my company, but I, I redefined it and said, okay, probably a better fit for a general manager and I'll keep the sales manager spot open but he's going to kind of half fill some of the sales manager job and I'm going to half fill the other sales manager job. Yeah. That means that he's going to do the, 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 um, the weekly check-ins with my team. And, and you know, how you go to a restaurant and you have the, the owner or the manager come up to you and say, Hey, I just want to check in, make sure everything's going well. So he's going to try to prevent problems before they become a problem. And then I'm probably going to be the guy that comes in when there is a problem, you know? And so we're going to kind of split duties a little bit on that front. Yeah. Um, so I find that it, just having that where you color code it and it's not only the owner of the company, but it's other people too. You find it, oh, just this person's filling like three seats. It helps me more clearly define who I should hire and when I should hire them. Cause you look at that and you're like, okay, I, you know, th this person's doing four things. This person's doing three things and everyone else is doing one thing. Well, it's one of these two people's roles that need to be filled. So what makes most, the most sense today to fill? Yeah. And then I just isolate those and you hire, you know, X number of people per year to fit that. Yeah. Um, I do change the future one every, every year, by the way, it, yeah. it does not, it does not stay static, you know? Um, so you keep looking at that, reevaluating, you're like, you know what? The business has changed. My mindset has changed. And, um, as an entrepreneur, I, I feel like it's really important to, to, to know and feel like you're always growing and changing and learning. Yeah. Um, was one of the reasons I love doing what I do. Yeah. Um, because you have to be able to adapt to, to change. So my people strategy is definitely, the org chart, making sure that people know that there are opportunities inside the company. They actually, we do it at our, at our retreat every year. People get to see the future org chart. And sometimes I have people come up to me and say, you know, I'm kind of interested in that role in the future college, just putting it out there. Yeah. And that's cool. Cause now they can see that there's not a glass ceiling above them. There's something else to grow into and they can physically see that. Yeah. Um, and hiring people for the right, uh, the right fit. And the last thing that my business coach, I've worked, I've worked with a business coach since 2012 um, and he's been hammering into my skull, uh, since day one is culture. And at first I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Culture. I get it. Got yeah. it. Gotcha. Um, and then <laughs> over time you realize, especially as the company grows, you're like, oh my God, like this is such a large part of what I do day to day is just preserving my corporate culture. Yeah. You know? And what is your culture? Yeah. Um, so we actually, we have our company values, um, and, um, and I, actually was able to, to, uh, to make it out into a, um, an acronym. So, uh, we now say, are you on track? Okay. And the T stands for teamwork. R stands for creating raving fans. Um, and that's inside and outside the organization. The A stands for accountability. The C stands for communicate with love and K stands for Kaizen. And, uh, Kaizen is a Japanese term. And I know Toyota could have used it quite a bit and, and spoke, spoke to this quite a bit, but Basically, Kaizen means continuous incremental improvement. And I believe that I want people in my company to work uh, where they are always looking to just marginally increase their abilities all the time. 
And we want to marginally increase the abilities of our business to serve our customers all the time. And there's a lot of books about this. Um, uh, Darren Hardy with the compound effect and uh, Robin Sharma with the uh, monk who sold his Ferrari. Um, they talk about just little incremental improvements. You know, 1% better every, year, every day is 365% better after the year, which is a massive improvement. And so Kaizen really just means the ardor act of continually just getting better at what you do. Uh, day in, day out. And uh, that combined, especially with accountability, is super key. Uh, my team don't aren't scared to raise their hand and say, that was that was my bad. And then we say, okay, that's that's fine. Let's let's move past it. What's the system and what's the approach that's going to solve it and prevent it from happening? And the way I look at it is um, every people problem that happens in my business is actually a failure on my part because I have created the system for how our company operates. And every problem that happens is a system problem, not a people problem. If it's a people, if it's obviously a people problem, then you shouldn't have that person. That's a completely different conversation. But when problems arise in your company, it's actually a systems problem, not a, usually not a person problem. Yeah, it's often communication, breakdown, yeah. redundancy. Yeah. Or just straight up data loss, error, or something like that. I totally get it. Well, we only have three company values and one of them is Kaizen. Nice. Yeah, I totally get it. The other two are passion and speed of trust. Yeah, but it, what I've learned in, in building culture and values is that the team tells me what the values are, actually. I think the first time I ever did it, you know, I brainstormed values with a small team that we had at the time and we came up with too many that we couldn't properly remember. Yeah. And uh, what I've learned over the years is that if you just pay attention and see... Um, you know, just reflect on who is really successful and why and, and who isn't and why, um, that's what's worked for me, you know, and analyzing it that way. We actually, yeah. And that's the exercise that my business coach had us go through years ago was actually that we sat there and brainstormed. What are the, th what are the words that define what we're all about? Yeah. And you start to throw those up on the wall and then you start to try to categorize them. Like what, keywords could you lump a few of these words underneath yeah to to create a, a word that resonates right yeah um and actually the first you know one of the important things too is the values don't have to stay totally consistent like my values were created back in originally back in 2013 i think it was um and my team had changed a little bit and the, the and it felt like the values with my new team weren't really resonating you know i'd say it and even for me i almost not quite cringe when I would say it, but I just, the, the intention behind it wasn't working. And we decided to just kind of tear it down a little bit. And some of the stuff stuck and some of the new ones, you know, it's, there are some new ones there. Right. But, yeah. but now it just seems like that's an important thing and people can get behind it. And, um, I actually through the interview process when we we're hiring people, um, we asked them what's important to them, what their personal values are try to make sure that um that we haven't already discussed what our values are <laughs> you know it is when you're interviewing somebody they're going to say whatever they need to say to get the job sometimes right sometimes. but um but yes and what their values are what's important to them and um and hopefully there's an alignment there yeah. that's really the key is maintaining a strong culture is really important yeah i like in interviews to talk about um our values and and ask them about you know experiences in their past where you know, they may have demonstrated that value and see, see what those answers look like. Mm -hmm. You know, you were talking earlier about your org chart and I just wanted to clarify for people listening. I recognize what you're talking about. It was indeed traction tools. They call it an accountability chart where you, uh, 
you know, it's not about just organizing the people you have on your team into, you know, job titles and a pretty picture. It's looking at, at all the accountabilities or jobs that are being done in the company first and, and organizing that in your mind and then, and then on the screen. And then uh, very likely there's people wearing multiple hats and, uh, you know, if people want to learn more about that, that's uh, Traction, Traction on Demand, I think it's the name of the company. But the other book you mentioned, The E-Myth, that's a good one too, but that one's about, uh, you know, Mary making pies and she's got a successful pie shop until she hires someone to help her. And then, you know, just, you know, it, it's about trying to, it's this thing I talk about with a lot of my friends about getting stuck between, you know, are you self-employed? Or are you an entrepreneur? And in my mind, the difference is that a self-employed person kind of, they're kind of stuck doing their job, whether it's making pies or whatever, they're the best at it and they're there doing it every day. Uh, and they're real entrepreneurs able to design and build something where the whole is truly greater than some of the parts where they're not uh, even an integral part of it, but it's, uh, it's a machine generating great results for people or products or whatever it is. Yep. I agree. Yeah. And I know that they talked... He talks a lot about um, who you have in the company. I still kind of reference this occasionally, but you have the visionary, the technician, and the manager. And those three people are often different too, you know? And yeah. so uh, sometimes just visualizing who you are. And sometimes you might be the owner of your company, but you're not a visionary. You might be a technician, you know, the pie maker yeah. <laughs> or a technician, very yeah. good at the craft. But that means you don't hire another person that is good at what you do. You actually have to hire for your weaknesses. And yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, observation. Yeah, it is. It's so rare that the founder of a company would step back into, you know, a role like that. But it does happen once in a while. Mm -hmm. I've even wondered it about myself because I'm not as I'm not as extroverted as I as I should be, you know, in, in my role in my company. And um I frankly like to uh, be left alone and to chill and to think creatively about solving problems. So I wonder if, if one day uh, that somebody else will be, you know, the face of this company and that I will be uh, just a bit of a, just a bit of a mad scientist in the back, just cooking up some crazy <laughs> shit. Uh, thinking uh, maybe it might solve some problems. I could see it. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens. So, Back to real estate, what are, you know, in terms of putting your money where your mouth is, like what are some of the deals that you're doing that you're most excited about or opportunities you see? You mentioned pre-sale positively. Thank you for that. <laughs> he did not pay me. To yeah, say that. Totally. <laughs> um, but you told me about one of your deals once, uh, Airbnb related, mm -hmm. Victoria, I think. Yep. Tell me yep. about that one. It's cool. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm going to start off by telling you the other deal I did last year too, cause it kind of spins off into this and it's going to talk about my crazy year last year. Cause I did big three massive deals. If I did any one of these in one, one year, it'd be huge, yeah. but everything came uh, all at once. So last year, uh, a broker in my franchise brought me this uh, individual who had this property tied up in North Vancouver. He had it tied up for 9.5 million. It was a 14 unit stratified building with, um, with two owners who were fighting and they wanted to offload the asset. But it was a, a rental building. So he comes up to me and, and we start going through the deal and he has appraisals on the individual units for 12.5 million. So under contract for 9.5, the sellable value of the individual units on their own is 12.5 million. So I said, oh, that's really cool. Um, so I see your contract. You've got five business days to remove your subjects and provide a $400,000 deposit. Um, you know, where's your down payment coming from? He's like, oh, I'm working on it. I'm like, mm, define working on it. Uh, like, how much money do you have? 
oh, I could probably scrape together a hundred grand. He says, I'm like, you're trying to buy a $10 million building with a hundred grand. Okay. Cojones. So, um, and I think he had some lines in on somebody that might partner with him on the deal, but he hadn't heard back from the person in weeks and you know, things are getting pretty testy here. So I said, look, this is a really cool deal. I need to dive into it a bit more, but, um, how would you feel about us being partners on it? Cause he lived in Peachland and the, you know, the building's quite far away from him to manage. Um, I had done this before where working with Aussie Jurok back in the day, um, they would have a lot of buyers buy, like they would buy buildings and do the exact same thing. And then I would help not the financing on the acquisition side, but I would help them finance the end buyers. So I knew what the requirements would be and how this process works in order to turn on an, an inactive strata and turn it on and set up bylaws and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't actively involved in those, but I knew enough about it. Um, and making sure that the buyers can get financing on, on the purchases, et cetera. So, um, not to mention if the deal's good, I can bring in the investor, you know, a couple calls. Um, so I do, do the numbers. You should see the spreadsheet. You like spreadsheets, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. The spreadsheet is my, my golden child, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's the best spreadsheet. Well, second best spreadsheet I've made to date. Um, is the numbers are so good or is it so well, big? Um, basically I broke it down and, and went through, um, the profit of, of the project. And I had multi tons of tabs in it. I broke down the cash flows in a month to month basis, because in order to determine how much capital you need to raise on it, you need to make sure that you have enough money to get through the monthly burn on it. Right. Because you're going to be selling units, but they're not going to close for X number of months. And so I did some projections on, ah, if we sell two units per month, starting in July and we close in, you know, in March, then we're going to have their cash influx coming in at this time. We need to make sure I don't want to raise 2.9 million from the investor. And then three months later, two months later, Hey, can I have another hundred grand? You're better to just ask for 3 million bucks up front. Right? So, um, the spreadsheet was really cool. I could actually toggle the market too. I could, I had a toggle in there that I could say, well, what happens if the market goes up by 5%, 10% down by 5%, 10% or whatever. And things like this actually help too. When you're bringing in an investor, cause you say, Hey, look, here's the spreadsheet playing around with the numbers. You can stress test it yourself, but here, here's my high level analysis. If the market goes down 10%, we still break even, you know, um, if the market goes down by 5%, we're going to make this much money, et cetera. But you set, you hand that spreadsheet over because these, these people that are going to have 3 million bucks are going to be pretty smart people too. They're going to know how to, you know, dig into this stuff. But my expected profit margin on this deal is $1.8 million. Um, and if we fast forward to when we actually wrapped up the whole project and sold all the units, it was actually 1.76 million in profit. So I'm happy to say that I was very accurate at doing this, which was great. But um, basically we, we bought all 14 units, um, went through the bylaws, uh, set up a, um, we had to file a disclosure because now we're a developer, even though the units weren't brand new, they were about 10 years old. We are now the first people selling uh, the units to individual buyers. So we had to file a disclosure. Uh, legal fees were like $87,000. <laughs> It's like, holy cow, that's a lot. But uh, this had all been accounted for in the performer and everything. And um, myself and the person that were in the deal made a, made a good profit. Uh, and the investor uh, made, I think the return on capital was about nine months later. And uh, they made uh, 28% return on their capital annualized. It was about, that's about 42% return. Uh, They're very happy. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. I even got my dad to, because the... The 400 grand, by the way, uh, I had to come up with 400 grand in, in five days. So I can yeah. do the spreadsheet. Yeah. And numbers are good. Okay. We're going to do this. And before we even have my letter of interest signed with the person I'm partnering up with, 
I'm raising, I'm calling my dad and my uncle. Like I need, I need some money real quick. It's a surefire thing. Right. Yeah. The, the day we're supposed to put the deposit up, the partner calls and he says, Hey man, you know, that investor that was hanging around, like he just called me back and he's interested in doing the deal. And my wife wants me to take that deal. And I'm like, you're kidding me. Right. (laughs) I, um, I remember I was in my office and I was pacing around like you'd never believe, right? Just, you know, you know, the feeling when you're in a stressful environment or situation. So, um, from, I've actually used this in a sales perspective before. And the, the, the thing that I like to say is, okay, what would it take for us to work together on this? And then you have to shut up and no matter how difficult it is, you can't be the first one to say a word. And I think it was like a minute and a half of silence on the phone. It was the most awkward difficult silence I've ever been through. And he says, I'm going to talk to my wife and I'll call you back. And he calls me back and he says, I'm a man of my word. Let's do the deal. And I said, okay, hang up. And then I started fist pumping in the air so hard. (laughs) (laughs) So his thing that what he wanted, he wanted it to, he wanted to be a good guy. He reflected on what the question he'd posed and, and it became about him, right? Am I a guy that's just going to have wasted all this nice guy's time and getting his financial commitments from his dad and his uncle? Or am I a guy of course. that yeah. goes, stands and by? And I had a, an investor that was ready to pull the trigger on this thing too. Like I had pulled the pieces together, yeah. right? And I understand his wife doesn't know me. And from her perspective and probably from his perspective too, the deal wasn't done yet. We're still doing the deal with the investor and all that stuff. And, and we had a very early relationship. We had known each other for a week. Right. Yeah. And so it seemed on the surface, like the other deal is more of a surefire thing. But I also told him too, I'm like, I don't know who this other guy is, but like you have somebody like me at the helm doing this project. The investor I pulled in is also a developer, by the way. So if something hits the fan, like I have him in my corner, like Trust me, when the, the profit margins and the, the returns for an investor are 28% over like a nine or 10 month period, I will find money. I have one person that I think can just write the check, but if I have to find 10 people to write $300,000 checks, I can do that too, you know? So um, yeah, it was, a, it was pretty testy, but we, we got through that. Now, this deal came to my on my plate in March and then by April, we're closing on it. By May, uh, a realtor that we're working with in Victoria um, has been sending my fiance and I some cabins because we want to buy an Airbnb cabin, you know, nothing, nothing too crazy. Uh, all of a sudden this deal hits my inbox and it's five units in downtown Victoria, one seller. And it was a private sale listing on Facebook. And he's like, Hey, this, this came up. What do you, what do you think? I'm like, Oh boy, this is a lot bigger than I kind of was thinking. Um, but this is really cool. And so we start to look into it is five out of seven units in downtown Victoria in a, a skinny little building that's seven years old in downtown Victoria, which is uncommon. Uh, we used to be a parking lot and it was built on top of a parking lot. Um, so we do the numbers and they look really good. I start to use, um, this website called air DNA, where you can pull data on Airbnb, um, other Airbnbs in the marketplace. So you pay like 19 bucks a month for the, to subscribe to a market. So, uh, it gives you a whole bunch of data. It actually scores the market you're looking into, which is kind of neat. So I don't remember the, the total scores for Victoria, but, um, but it did, one of the scores I remembered was how uh, cyclical that market is, AKA is it super peaky in the summer or winter and then dead in the opposite season. And it rated Victoria as an A minus. And, you know, people go there in the fall and the spring. It's not just a summer or just a winter destination. It's pretty solid all around, which is nice. So we're going through due diligence and, and uh, the deal looks good, but I really want the other two units in the building. 
and the seller, you know, so I asked like, who owns the other two units? And she says, well, that's my ex-boyfriend. Great. <laughs> okay. Kind of have his number. And she's like, well, remove subjects and I'll give you his number. So I'm like, oh, man, like I, I really don't want to take the plunge without having the other two tied up, but you know, as an entrepreneur and a risk taker, sometimes you just got to do it. And okay. I felt, okay, the five units, even if we just bought them and, and I felt very bullish on the, uh, on the condo values at that time too. Um, so I felt good about it, but I really wanted control of the whole strata. So we, we went firm on that, um, before we had investor capital raised or anything, by the way, um, then I'm negotiating with him. So I call him say, Hey, um, I got your phone number from your ex. <laughs> Are you interested in selling your units? No, no, I'm not interested in selling. Thanks. Click. I'm like, Oh crap. Okay. Give him, give him a day or two, call him again. Hey, it's calling, calling, calling back. It just, I, you know, I just wanted to check in with you and follow up. You know, I, I've been thinking about it and, you know, it's, I still do want your two units just to be clear. Um, you know, we, we have some plans that we want and we will be in control of the strata with five out of the seven units. I don't even know if that's completely true. Cause we'd have, I guess, I think it's 71% or something like that. And I think you might even need 75%. So. so I told them, Hey, uh, you know, we're gonna have control of the strata and this and that. Yeah. I, I feel like I remember looking it up and it's like 75. Damn. I'm still going to tell him that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I call him up and, um, say, you know, we have big plans and this time I was like, well, okay, uh, I'll get back to you. So he calls me back a day or two later and says, look, I'm going to sell them, but, but for this much, no less. And the numbers he gave me were just a little bit more than what I bought the exact same units from his ex for. And I'm wondering if they're in communication and I still to this day do not know. I never asked, but in my head, it's a snap. Yes. But of course you got to play it cool. You're still negotiating. Right. So I say, okay, um, let me think about that. I'll, you know, I'll talk to, talk to my fiance and I'll get back to you. Two seconds later, I'm on the phone with my lawyer. I need this contract. I need contracts done like tomorrow. <laughs> like, rush it. Yeah. Because of course to him, he's think it's still going to take a day or two to get contracts. It makes it look like I was thinking about it for two days. But yeah. really it was just the lawyers getting their contracts together, right? Yeah. So um, put the offers together, try and get those signed ASAP. And um, and so closed on five of them in September. And then the other two are kind of staggered and we closed on them uh, in October. So we had started to work on a bit of a marketing plan and our intention um, and strategy. And what we did was we themed each of the units. So we looked up, first of all, why would somebody go to Victoria? So I looked up, you know, um, the websites now, but uh, there's, uh, there's different websites and, and you can look up all the um, attractions in the area. TripAdvisor? Yeah, TripAdvisor, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So looked that up and um, things like there's the butchered gardens there. There's, uh, a lot of wildlife, um, seeing, especially like the, the, um, nautical wildlife and whale watching and that kind of stuff is very popular there. Obviously parliament is a big thing there. Yeah. Um, uh, West coast. So what you end up doing is we custom designed each of the units and we have a Navy theme because the Naval base is located close by. Uh, we have an, an Orca theme, um, which is all black and white and like high end furniture and stuff. Um, we have a Chinatown theme because there's the oldest uh, Chinatown in Canada still there and the oldest still standing Chinatown in North America because the one in San Francisco burned down back in the early 1900s. Um, we have uh, West Coast theme, Parliament theme, and what's the other one I'm forgetting here? Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Well, that one <laughs> is in Victoria, by the way. So we knew the model worked. And using AirDNA, we could actually see how much money that... So that wasn't yours, the Harry Potter one? No, it's not. Uh -huh. I know people think it was, but yeah. it's not. No. I, I was one of those people. 
But um, so we steamed all the units. Um, Christina, my fiance, actually moved there for like seven months and was a general contractor. And let me tell you, she is a detail-oriented perfectionist. Contractors are the exact opposite. Like we had one moment in time where we went through, I think we went through three um, handymen in like 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Like call one doesn't show up. He's like, Oh, sorry. My truck's not, didn't work. It's like, you, or his, my brakes went on me while I was driving into, into work. I'm like, are you eight years old? Like, did your dog eat your homework yeah, on the way too? Like, come on. Right. We call another person. Something happens there. Oh, and before all this happened, the reason we need a new handyman is we had one person just come to us and say, Hey, I don't know. I'm just not sure if this is working out. Um, I think you should find another handyman. I was like, okay. And that was, that came out of left field and he'd worked for us for like a day and a half, by the way. So yeah, we went through a period of time where we went through like three handyman in, in 24 hours. And that's just the tip of the iceberg ordering furniture, because what ends up happening is you can't just find the furniture that works and, and that is available to you. Uh, Christina would do all this work, piece everything together. This is going to look good with that. And this is going to look good with that. And so you have all the specific stuff. And then you hope that the specific stuff is going to deliver in a reasonable timeline. And with COVID, everything's been delayed. We have a couch that's showing up in October. We bought these units in September last year, you know? So we're reusing a couch from one of the units and it's like, yeah. uh, it doesn't quite fit the design, but it's tolerable. So it'll work. <laughs> How did she do that? What was her day job? I guess she didn't have one if she's going over there for no. So, so uh, that was it. So she uh, was a, she was in tennis all her life, uh, was a pro tennis player, retired at 23. Tennis is weird. You know, she just, she just won the tennis seniors nationals. Um, and they call her a senior cause she's 30. <laughs> so when you're when you're 30 you're a senior in tennis now so she won the nationals singles and doubles just last weekend actually she's a very good tennis player um at hollyburn um no that's like the nationals like actual like oh tennis in can in canada yeah i see canadian tournament and then uh, we're members at jericho tennis club so she also won that the same weekend too so cool cleaned up yeah congrats so um she um her story was that uh, she was in tennis she wanted to become a lawyer realized "Eh, maybe i don't want to be a lawyer and then uh, she had a marketing company because she's very good at making things look pretty. And um, and then when COVID hit, most of her clients were in the business of sport, especially tennis. And all of a sudden, all of her contracts just died. And so we had uh, maybe a month or two into COVID and we had this thought, it's like, you know, I am all of a sudden, I'm trying to roll a boulder downhill and she's trying to roll it uphill. And we can have that conversation of like, well, what do you want to do? Like, is our relationship at that point now where you work a bit less and support the f- household a bit more and do that kind of stuff. And I'll work more and you just take over more of that stuff and we'll, you know, it'll work for the household. But we had been dating for only two ish years, two and a half years at that point. So it's a, you know, that's a leap, especially for it's a very that, independent yeah. woman. Right. So yeah. she said, uh, yeah, okay, let's do it. And then I remember a follow up conversation we had a few months later where she said, you know, both of us kind of thought, Hey, um, we're both feeling really good. We're both feeling kind of selfish that we're getting what we want. You know, I don't, I don't mind working. I'd rather do another mortgage than do dishes, <laughs> you know? And, and she's feeling like, oh, this is much better. Like I'd, I'm rather, I'd rather take care of her dog and, you know, and, and take care of the family and unit and all that kind of stuff. Right. But that was, she was just starting to 
you know, wind down our marketing company. And then that, that North van deal comes up. So of course, me being me, I do the spreadsheet. The numbers look good. Oh yeah, let's do this deal. I'm going to make, I'm, I'm seeing dollar signs in my eyes, right? Then, um, I start to make the list the project management list. And then my heart starts to sink. I'm like, wait a second. It's, um, it's March of 2021. The mortgage market is on fire. I'm hiring people like crazy. We are, you know, by the end of 2021, my mortgage company had fun, uh, had doubled its volume from 20, uh, from 2019. So 2019 to 2021 volumes went from 120 million to 250 million in funded volume, crazy jump. Yeah. Um, so all of that's happening. And then this deal and I <laughs> come to Christine, I'm like, so I just realized how much work this is going to be. And I, I think you'd be really good at it. And I was wondering if you could help me out. She's like, you know, she's saying, well, I, I, I really wanted a break. She just kind of wanted a bit of a break and then she'd figure out what she wants to do moving forward. I didn't really allow her to have that break. Um, she's like, okay, sure. I'll help you. I'm like, yes. Okay. Awesome. And then I sent her an email, like a day or two later with a spreadsheet with like 86 project management items on it. And she was like, <laughs> what the is this yeah <laughs> not you what know. we talked about yeah exactly like i did not sign up for this um so that was fun um going through that and and uh and having that experience but what we found is that we're different people we actually have kind of like hiring for your uh um for your weaknesses um we both have different strengths and weaknesses so she's more detail oriented and me being more of an entrepreneur i'm more of like a vision and you know okay this is the role that somebody else is going to do and then they kind of do it and so i'm the guy that can make the deals happen but i need somebody to do the work um and do the detailed stuff and make things look pretty and and there's a lot of value in that kind of partnership too right somebody has to do it and do it right and be in charge of making sure it happens and to follow up with people to make sure that people are showing up. Like I'm, I'm not great at follow up. My company is set up in a way where my team do the follow up and they pull me in when they need me, not me following up with them to make sure that they're doing the job they need yeah. to do. Right. So it's just a different way of, of running our, our lives and therefore our businesses. And so, uh, yeah, she became basically like, our, she just runs our real estate businesses now effectively. And so, um, did the North Van deal. She's the project manager on that. And then Victoria, she was living there, generating, uh, like renovating all the units and buying all the furniture and getting them all set up. And then also running the day-to-day -day Airbnb business, uh, which again is very hands-on. There's a lot of action. I, I tell people, because it happens a lot where people in the real estate investor world are thinking, I really want to do an Airbnb. I can double my income. It's like, yeah, but it's not just double the work, by the way, of having a long-term tenant. It is an ongoing thing. Um, and so we've, we, you know, we, there's a lot of systems and things like that you can upgrade. And so we have, we've upgraded our gate and now it's a keypad access and um, the same for the elevator. And we're still waiting because again, these are in back order. We're still waiting for the, uh, on the actual doors themselves, the units to have uh, automated, uh, uh, you know, keypad locks there instead of key locks. The systems we showed up were all fob based and then key based. And so we're changing that. So what you can do is with a system, you can have a system that has a, a unified calendar, a unified inbox. Um, so you can book it on a number of different platforms and then it updates all the platforms availabilities right away. So you can have somebody book on booking.com and then it automatically fills the calendar um, on your Airbnb listing and your VRBO listing and everything. Um, which is very helpful because especially if the units look really nice, you need yeah. eyeballs, right? It's all about the marketing now and charging a higher price and maintaining high quality of standard in all the units. 
Um, and you can also have it so that once some, uh, somebody books, you can have a templated uh, message that goes out to them automatically in whatever platform they've been using to book. It'll automatically create a door code for them. You can have it set so the door code is available only from the day of check-in at X time, and then it's good until the day of checkout at X time, and it's all automated for you. And you can create these automated messages that go to guests, and you can have it so that five days before their check-in and one day before their check-in and day of, it sends them a reminder of like, here's how to get to the unit, here's parking, here's this, here's that, all the relevant, important information for booking your trip, Right. Um, and so you can automate a lot of this stuff, um, and there's still a lot of it that needs to be hands-on and dealing with issues, uh, that arise. And there's a lot of issues, you know, um, where's the pizza cutter? <laughs> That's the example I always bring up. I always say that if it's it was a real one, right? if it was me dealing with this, you wouldn't do a good job. I'd be like, have you ever heard of a knife? <laughs> <laughs> you know? But Christina is like on it, right? She's like, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it. I'll, I'll get you. I'll, I'll figure it out. And yeah. she takes, she's a perfectionist and she wants everything to be perfect. And that's why we have really good star ratings. And yeah, so we bought in total, the building is seven units. We own the whole building. Um, one of the important things we raised capital to do the deal, um, to, uh, to, to close on it. So we raised $960,000 in capital and we put an extra 140,000 into it. So we t- total needed 1.1 million. The building cost us in total, adding up all the units, three point four million to uh, to purchase. Um, last month, just the six Airbnb units generated forty two thousand dollars of income. Wow! Yeah, and um, and so it's. I'm not sure. There's the summer effect, which of course you're going to get more rental income in summer. But again, v- Victoria's not as cyclical as, as other markets, so it won't be like that's um, going to be way higher than other other times of the year. But there's also when you when you start up your Airbnb units and and we had a few of them come on board slowly and then May second I think was when we had a batch of three of them kind of go all all in the line within a week or two of each other, but you can't charge a high premium price with no reviews and a fully open calendar. So you have to kind of start it off low and then you slowly keep inching it up and we keep reevaluating it based off of how many bookings we have. So realistically, our July bookings would have had some people that booked those units the, the the day or a few days after they went online at discounted prices. I didn't know that. The, the, the wrong thing to do is just to just to flood it, just to show like fully wide open availability, no no reviews, nobody books that one? Well, not at a high price. Yeah. Like what, what justification do you have for the high price other than the design of the units, yeah. which is nice, but we wanted to just kickstart it and get going. One of the things we did do, however, is we booked it so that I can't remember if it was three or six months in advance, but we didn't allow people to book too far in advance because I think it was six months was our cutoff because we didn't want them booking a unit at 140 bucks at night in their first week or two of launching it. When once we ramped up reviews and um, have lowered or have increased occupancy, we didn't want people to be having a booking in November at 140 when maybe by that point we're at 220 a night or something, right? So we kind of blocked off the future bookings and now we're starting to kind of open that up, but we're still playing that system and game a little bit because we still think there's some room to, to grow upwards. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So 14 in North Van, seven in Victoria and the third 21 units. Yeah. So, um, okay. So going back to timelines, that 14 unit building came up on my desk in March, closed in April. This deal came up in May, bought the other two units in June, closed on those September and then October. While all this is happening, we're onboarding a new system in our mortgage company. And um, I own, I co-owned a mortgage franchise with another partner, but really me and my partner 
were 90% or 80% of the funded volume for that franchise. Um, and they were in their mid fifties. They're actually the people I started working with when I got in the business back in 2006, but we were just not quite aligned on like the business strategy and mindset. The, um, their objective was more of a, a low cost for the brokers. Um, but then low, in my opinion, value to the brokers because there just wasn't enough margin for me to be able to provide and do a lot of things with. And you get this weird spot where you want to grow the company, but even if you grow it, you'd have to get, it's just a, a number of bodies game at that point. And then I can't really provide a lot of value to each broker because you're looking at it's like, I'm going to make 200 bucks a month off of you. So you've got four minutes go, you know, and it, that, that's not the way I like to run my business and support value. I'd rather have less brokers, provide them with more value and do more for them. I actually think that providing more value, you can actually grow it and do even more because the the cost approach is commoditizing your business and the value game is, it's much easier in my opinion to grow a more profitable business that way. So we're just a little bit misaligned on that. And then what ends up happening is my, my thought process on where do I spend my time often would just go back to building my own personal originations business because I own that hundred percent and I have full control over that, right? Why well, am I going to build a business that I have 50% of the upside of? Um, and I'm not really building it my way. So I wanted to buy out my part, my business partners. And I just so happened to be onboarding a new system, um, in the mortgage industry. So basically if there's always one lend or one system you could use to submit your deals to the lenders and they would make a couple of basis points. So a very, a small fraction of a percent. Yeah. Software. And the new player came into the market and we were onboarding that new player. And I'd mentioned in passing that, yes, I was onboarding the new system. My business partners said they were going to, but they haven't quite gotten around to it yet and whatever. And I guess it's probably venting now that I think about it <laughs> a little bit. But anyways, uh, the owner calls me back later that afternoon. He asked me if I'm alone. And knowing this guy's humor, I thought he was going to ask me what I'm wearing next, but he didn't. He asked me, um, <laughs> you know, are you, he basically told me that, hey, look, we're selling our mortgage brokerage because our technology company is taking off and we just don't have time for both businesses. So they're selling their mortgage brokerage. And so uh, we got in a conversation about that. And so I'm having lunch with them in June or July. So all of these deals are like month to month to month. I'm just stacking them on top of each other. It was nuts for me to say yes, but every deal or opportunity that kept coming across my desk was so hard to say no to. Right. Uh, in hindsight, yeah, it was, it was a bit much to have, bitten off all of that in one year two would have been good not three but anyways um we started having we talked and like i was thinking this is wonderful because i'm just taking instead of trying to take there's 20 agents in total in that brokerage instead of taking my 10 with me and they're going to keep 10 and trying to start from a base of 10 people especially when i'm now 80 or 90 percent of that funded volume and then try to grow it from there i knew that either i'm going to commit to hiring somebody and to lose money for X number of months, or I'm going to do everything myself. And I'm like, I'm already pretty busy. Right. But, um, but they already had 40 agents that funded or on track to fund just over a billion dollars in, in, in mortgages that year. And there's another broker, um, in that franchise was similar in volume to me and we we're good buds and stuff. So it just kind of made a lot of sense. And, um, so we got to talking and, um, next thing you know, we're signing a letter of interest in, I think October of that year, um, there were some negotiations. There was another private equity firm that all of a sudden kind of showed up. I thought I kind of had the deal in the bag. All of a sudden, a private equity firm showed up and started. They were saying, oh, this other company's offering more than you, Kyle. They're going to need you to come up. I'm like, well, how much? I'm like, uh, we're just going to need you to come up. I'm like, oh, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, what ended up happening is there's four owners of this mortgage company and also the same owners owned 
owned and had other partners in the technology company, right? But I was only dealing and negotiating with one person at this point. And I remember talking and saying, look, what is the exit strategy for you, just you, if this private equity firm buys this company? He's like, well, they're going to install a new manager and this. And I'm like, are they a mortgage broker already? Or no, 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 they're just a private equity firm, but they're going to hire a really good person. Like, so how long are you going to need to stay in this business to help transition out of it? Exactly. So I could tell I hit a chord, struck a chord with him. I'm like, look, I know this doesn't affect your other three business partners, but I bet you it affects you. And you know, as the operating partner. Exactly. And I said, I, I, I don't know what your relationship and how you're going to deal with the other partners, but I know this is going to affect you a lot more than it's going to affect the others. Right. But you know, with me, I know how to run a mortgage company. I've already been doing it. I'm not going to need you around. I know our contract and our letter of interest says you're going to be around for 12 months, but like, I'm not going to need you, man. And sure enough, like he, he put in very little time on this transition. It wasn't really required. Um, it was very easy to take over this business. The price was right. The multiple was very low. And it's actually funny because uh, I don't know. If, uh, I think you're at the re- the EO retreat last year. And I, and then I went there and I remember all these tech guys are talking about selling their businesses for like 15 times annual recurring revenue. Revenue, revenue, not not profit, but revenue. So typically a normal company, brick and mortar company will sell for about three-ish, sometimes five times the net income of the business. This business I was buying was much lower than that. And it's because in general, there's not a lot of buyers in our in our industry. Um, people are always worried because the, the term that I heard is that the assets have legs. All of the brokers were on one-year term contracts. They could leave me after a year if they didn't, didn't like me. Plus there's probably, you know, the founder probably in many cases is the main breadwinner, the yep. the lead generator, right? And if they're gone. Correct. Yeah. So buying. So that's the the tough part. And and a brokerage is a bit different because I'm buying a book where it's a bunch of agents that can help them build their own business. It's not like selling green mortgage where people usually call green mortgage to talk to me. People aren't calling an origin agent to talk to me. They're calling that specific agent. So I'm there to support their businesses, yeah. you know, as a franchise. So it's a bit easier, but still... I ended up, you know, telling them, look, number one, you're going to be stuck in this business longer than I think you'd like. And number two, you know, that with me at the helm, like I have aspirations to really grow this. I'm going to grow your company. I'm not going to change the name of your company. You still have, this is still your legacy that you started and I'm going to finish it for you. Um, And all the volume that this company generates is going to go through your system because all of the agents already use your system. You're going to make more money with me at the helm, generating more business for this brokerage that then submits all of that business through your system over here. So I know on paper, my offer is lower, but really if all of the owners are the same over on the other side in the technology company, you guys will make more money with me at the helm growing this faster than a private equity firm that's just looking at this and saying, this is a, this is a good buy, you know? So, um, yeah, again, another deal that almost fell apart, like negotiations becomes a big thing at some point. So bought that company. We closed um, in January of 2022 this year, and um, and then been setting up systems and processes for that business. And um, that's my current baby. Sounds like you're good at negotiating. I guess. I mean, yeah, a couple. Uh, you had a couple of big roadblocks there, right? Yeah. Competitive offer that's better. You know, and a reluctant seller, and in that first one, uh, a partner who, um, you know was about to jump ship and go with sort of the plan a partner who had been quiet for a few weeks. Right. And in each case, you just sort of either got lucky or, 
or whatever way, just sort of figured out, listened enough to kind of find that hot button. You know, for that mortgage broker, it was, you know, his, his exit. He just wanted to do the tech thing and kind of be done. And uh, it was a price for the guy in Victoria. And it was a character call out kind of for the uh, North Van guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool, man. Good for you. And it's hard to know those, but um, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you, you pick up on cues and it's not just the words that people are saying, it's the way that they say it and it's their body language and all these other things that are very good cues if you're paying attention to them, you know? Yeah. 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 But I think, um, I feel like being a mortgage broker for, for my, you know, adult life, it teaches us that we have a client that wants to send no documents to you and wants a million dollar mortgage and they want it at 0% interest. And then you have a bank that wants 10% interest and they want your firstborn and DNA sample and everything that goes in between. Yeah. Um, and, um, and you have to be the middleman that just connects everybody together to find the middle ground. So you have to be able to view things from each person's perspective to be able to figure out how you can get something to work. Yeah. Right. And so you really have to think about like, what really does this person want? Not what you want, but yeah. what does the other person want? Right. Yeah. And how can you deliver that? And, and how do you just, I mean, a lot of times you just have to break it down to be like, I know, I, I, I know what you're feeling and something you're throwing it out there and you don't actually know what they're feeling, but you have a pretty, you're, you think you're about 90% sure. Yeah. But if you hit it and you're like, I know what you're feeling, you're feeling this. And if you hit it, yeah. you know, the conversation completely changes. Yeah. And what if you're wrong? I'm never wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Except for that one time. Exactly. <laughs> I haven't told you about the deals that collapse yet. <laughs> no. Nobody wants to hear about those. No, no. <laughs> Um, this has been great, man. I've enjoyed talking to you so much. Yeah, me too. And, uh, I think we're going to do this again soon because, um, I really enjoyed it and we're going to be at land rush together soon. So we'll definitely see each other there. And I think maybe dinner afterwards would be nice. Yep. Yep. Congrats on your year in 2021. I mean, it's just amazing. And your business is cool. And thanks for sharing so much with our, uh, with our listeners about how you've done it. You know, the people, the systems I've learned so much. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah. This has been great. Yeah. It's fun to share the story and the story of 2022 now is having a bit more of a life again, (laughs) having vacation and all that stuff. And so trying to move the needle and that's important Hit the gym a bit more than I have been. So I know you're engaged if you guys set a date. Yeah. It's June 17th, 2023. Nice. Nice. Unless you give her three more projects to uh, deal with, right? Yeah. We barely got through those. I'm I'm joking. No, (laughs) no, we, I mean, with the, but what a transition. Heavy, two heavy, and a half so, years is like your honeymoon phase. And then all of a sudden your partners, business partners on these huge projects. Yeah. And, and you learn a lot about each other going through that, you know, cause there's the relationship dynamics, but then all of a sudden when you're working together dynamics and uh, that changes things too. Yeah. You know? When she needs something done and, and I'm getting the way of that being done because I'm also busy. Yeah. And then trying to figure out like, how do we, set communication here to to do that right? yeah and set expectations and so it was yeah it was definitely a learning experience i don't know how you do it i couldn't do it i don't know why you're a better man i couldn't do it it's just it, i have just no interest in it uh, i like keeping uh things separate i guess or uh i don't know why just don't think i have it in me yeah i mean and there are definitely pros and cons to that absolutely yeah. you know it, there's definitely some pros to keeping it separate and and whatnot but um on the, on the real estate side of things, it's just so enticing because we have completely different skill sets, you know, the finance, legal, the numbers part of it, the vision to piece the deals together and all that stuff is me. But 
comes to like the management part of it, the day-to-day operation, God operations and, um, and making things look good, especially the Airbnb business. The design is something that's unappreciated and, uh, it is appreciated by guests, but I don't think enough people spend time on the design of the Airbnb units and the, and the money. Um, the returns are very good to spend the extra money on that. So yeah. that's where she came in. So I'd like to learn more about that. I like so many people you talk to, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's cool. And I've been a user since before it was Airbnb. I don't remember what it was before Verbo maybe, but I remember the first time I ever did it, you had to go to some creepy coffee shop and talk to a guy to get a key and stuff. <laughs> it was like a, quite a long time ago. And, uh, you know, the automated lock technology and all the, all the software that you talk about that organized the whole thing just didn't exist yet. I love it. It's fascinating. I think we're going to learn more about it at Landrush too. I think there's an expert that's one of the speakers yep. or an agent that has a ton of experience with it. I think I don't know her, but yep. Yep. Kelly Fry, I think. Yeah, I think so. Looking forward to it, man. Thanks. Let's yeah. do this again. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.